Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... Your early 20s are a time for growth, family, friends, shaping the future, and thinking of all you hope to accomplish in life. On October 12th, 1990, a young woman was born whose life, at the age of 20, was heading in all the right directions. A life that would be tragically cut short in a mystery that left all Tennesseans scratching their head. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Holly Lynn Bobo, born October 12, 1990, had a whole lot going for her in the year 2011. The 20-year-old was a nursing student at the University of Tennessee at Martin, lived with her loving parents and brother in Darden, Tennessee, and had a boyfriend, Drew Scott, with whom she was crazy about. Things were going well, which is what makes the events of April 13th, 2011, all that more devastating when a single night not only changed her life forever, but rocked the entire state of Tennessee. At around 4.30 a.m. on April 13th, 2011, Holly woke early to study for an upcoming exam. A few hours later, according to the phone records, she received a call from her boyfriend, Drew, who was out turkey hunting, and her parents left for work while her brother, Clint, was still fast asleep in his bed. At 7.42 a.m., Holly made what would be her last call on her cell phone. And as texts and calls continued to roll in, 
all remained unanswered. Shortly after, a neighbor called his mother to tell her that he had just heard a terrifying scream come from the Bobo residence. The neighbor then called Karen Bobo at work. At 7.50 a.m., Clinton was suddenly awoken by the sounds of their family dogs barking. And when he looked outside, he saw Holly kneeling down and speaking with a man that he assumed was Drew Scott. Watching on, Clint noticed the pair, who were talking back and forth, seemed to be getting pretty heated. Unable to make out exactly what they were saying, Clint heard Holly say, no, why, and thought maybe the lovebirds were breaking up. Just then, a phone call came into the home, and when Clint answered, he heard his mother greet him on the line. After a brief, hurried exchange, Karen reportedly told her son, Clint, that's not Drew. Get a gun and shoot him. Still believing the unknown man was Holly's boyfriend, Clint rebuttaled, you want me to shoot Drew? As Karen made a call to 911. Unfortunately, because she was calling from work, the call was routed to a dispatcher in the wrong county. While the call was getting muddled back and forth, Clint looked outside and saw the man, who was dressed in camouflage, walking with Holly into the woods. It was at that point that the brother realized this man was much larger than Drew Scott and attempted to call both Holly and Drew's cell phones to try and get some answers. Neither picked up. At 8 a.m., Karen called the house again, and Drew told her what he had just seen. She told him to call 911, but instead, he walked outside with his loaded pistol in hopes of scaring off the unknown man. He saw bloodstains in the carport and dialed 911. Police arrived 10 minutes later, and at 8.17 a.m., a cell phone ping gave Holly's location. It appeared as though she was moving north in a wooded area near Interstate 40. Karen, who arrived home around the same time police showed up, begged law enforcement to put up roadblocks. They declined and, according to Karen, walked freely through the potential crime scene. They have, of course, denied her allegations. About 15 minutes after that initial ping, the phone stopped moving and, after about a 30-minute break, began traveling south again along a different route. It made its final ping at 9.25 a.m. at the location where her discarded phone and SIM card were later found. Almost immediately, an extensive search into Holly's whereabouts began, and with that came the discovery of a number of Holly's items. Things like her lunchbox, a receipt with her name on it, a card from school, and her phone were found all around town. And coupled with the terrifying story her brother told police, Everyone in the area was worried about the young all-American girl. The mystery of her disappearance and the desire for answers spread throughout the entire state of Tennessee, covering the pages of every newspaper and spoken about on every news station. Over the course of the entire investigation, a number of people were looked into and implicated in the disappearance of Holly Lynn Bobo, most of which, of course, never panned out. But for reasons unknown, police soon turned their attention towards six young men. Zach Adams, his brother Dylan Adams, friend Jason Autry, Jeffrey and Mark Percy, and Shane Austin. The domino effect that led to Holly's case being solved began with the arrest of Dylan Adams for an unrelated weapons charge, at which point he said he saw Holly Bobo alive with his brother Zach following her abduction. 
According to an affidavit for a search warrant, Dylan told the police that on the day that Holly disappeared, he went to Zach's house to grab his truck. And when he arrived, he saw Holly, very much so alive, sitting in their living room with friend Jason Wayne Autry. But all was not well. According to Dylan, Zach told him that he, quote, raped Bobo and videotaped it. Dylan's confession was enough to lead to the arrest of Zach Adams, Jason Autry, and Shane Austin in 2014. While police continued working up a case against the men, two additional suspects, the Percy brothers, were arrested as accessories after the fact for tampering with the evidence. According to Jeffrey's former roommate, he had showed her parts of a tape showing Zach Adams brutally assaulting a bound Holly Bobo, alleging that he and his brother were the ones who shot the incriminating video. They both have, of course, denied the video existed. And after a search of over 20 different phones, it has never been found. The charges were eventually dropped against the brothers. Shane Kyle Austin, who was arrested after cell phone records put him in contact with Zach Adams around the time of her abduction and was initially offered immunity in exchange for information about Holly's final resting place, had the agreement withdrawn when he claimed he was unable or unwilling, to lead them to her remains. That April, Shane's attorneys filed a complaint against the state asking for an immediate and permanent injunction preventing the state from charging him. While all of the charges were still up in the air, in September of 2014, the thing everyone was dreading finally happened. Holly's partial remains were found by hunters in a wooded area of Decatur County, just off of the I-40, about 20 miles from Darden. When police took her recovered skull in for examination, a bullet hole was found in the back with a trajectory that fractured her left cheekbone as it exited, likely being her cause of death. About five months after her body was found, Shane Austin took his own life while in custody at Henderson County Sheriff's Department in Lexington, Tennessee, for unrelated charges of theft and burglary. His lawyers blamed Shane's death on threats from the prosecution and the witch hunt style investigation of Holly's murder, claiming it was based on rumors instead of evidence. With Shane now deceased and the Percy brothers no longer being held criminally responsible, the state was left with Dylan, Zach, and Jason. Zach Adams was the first to go to trial in September of 2017, and almost the entirety of both his case and the others were based on circumstantial evidence a confession that didn't necessarily line up with the evidence, hearsay, and finger-pointing with Jason Autry promising to testify against his friend in exchange for leniency. There was nothing concrete connecting these boys, specifically Zach, to Holly's murder. And when Jason testified in court, the events were drastically different from the initial confession given by Dylan Adams. According to his version of events, he was simply at Shane Austin's home to buy some drugs, and when he was there, he saw Shane and the Adams brothers working to try and dispose of evidence from Holly's murder. He said that Zach had her body in the back of his truck, wrapped in a multicolored blanket, and that Shane was burning all of the rest. He said he had nothing to do with the crime against Holly Bobo, but did help Zach dispose of her body. The pair drove to a spot along the Tennessee River together and began unloading Holly from the back of the truck. It was at that point that they realized she was still alive. So Zach grabbed a gun and shot her in the back of the head. Sure, she had taken her final breath. Jason claimed Zach dropped him off and told him later that he dumped her body near Kelly Ridge, 
which is not the location where police eventually found her body. According to the prosecution, Shane and the Adams brothers went over to the Bobo residence to teach Clint how to make methamphetamine, an allegation that he vehemently denies, at which time Holly came out screaming at them. That's when they decided to abduct her, and it was Shane who Clint saw Holly walking into the woods with. The three men then raped the young girl in a local barn owned by the grandmother of both Shane Austin and Jason Autry. Backing this theory up was the fact that the receipt and note card found after Holly's disappearance was found just 75 or so feet away from Shane Austin's driveway. They also claimed that witnesses saw a white truck driving near the Bobo home the morning of the murder, and that Zach Adams drove a truck that matched that description. Though, as a person who lives in Tennessee, I can say that white pickup trucks are a dime a dozen. A number of witnesses came forward claiming that Zach made statements implicating himself in Holly's disappearance, and his then-girlfriend came to the stand and testified that, quote, he said he would tie me up just like he did Holly Bobo, and nobody would ever see me again. The defense, of course, claimed their client was 100% innocent, and alleged that Jason Autry concocted the whole story in exchange for a reduced sentence, pointing out that Holly's cell phone pings did not match his story and that none of the men matched Clint's description. In fact, a former TBI agent, who was the lead investigator on the case, testified for the defense claiming he ruled out these men early on in the investigation because Shane Austin passed a polygraph test, their alibis checked out, and the cell phone pings of both Zach Adams and Holly Bobo were several miles apart during the necessary timeline, pointing out further that, for Jason's story to be true, the boys would have had to been driving 106 miles per hour to fit the timeline, something that is highly unlikely on the winding gravel roads that they had to travel. On September 22nd, 2017, Zach Adams was found guilty of the charges of aggravated kidnapping, rape, and first-degree murder. The following day, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole, as well as two consecutive 25-year sentences. On January 18th, 2018, after seeing what happened to his brother, Dylan Adams used the Alford plea and pled guilty to the charges of facilitating first-degree murder and especially aggravated kidnapping. He was sentenced to 15 years for the murder and 35 years for the kidnapping. He will be eligible for parole in 35 years. Because of the deal he struck with prosecutors, on September 16th, 2020, Jason Autry was released from prison after accepting a plea that reduced his sentence to eight years of time served. The charges and sentences against these three men have been met with quite a bit of criticism over the years. In fact, DA Matt Stowe, who was elected to office in the summer of 2014, believes his election was due in large part to the skepticism regarding the arrests and questions about the evidence, or complete lack thereof. There was a lot of speculation about calculated decisions made by the prosecution, adding and dropping charges strategically to keep the men behind bars and their avoidance of preliminary hearings, as well as seemingly small decisions that affected things like scheduling, with one man even calling out the prosecution's actions as either ill-informed or being disingenuous. According to Zach's attorney, a number of pieces of evidence was never turned over to the defense, including DNA samples that were reportedly found in Zach's home that included menstrual blood from Holly Bobo, evidence that the medical examiner herself said she never saw. Following a hearing in December of 2014, 
Before any of the trials began, a dispute regarding the case led to the TBI dropping its investigation and severing all ties with the district. They only agreed to come back on the case if Matt Stowe, who accused them of misconduct, recused himself from the case, appointing a special prosecutor in his absence. According to emails by Executive Director of Tennessee District Attorney's Conference, Matt Stowe accused the TBI of proceeding, quote, so slowly that the culprits were always one step ahead and that TBI was leaking information and possibly covering up evidence. All of this, coupled with the complete denial by all three men and allegations that they were coerced, has led many to wonder if the case of Holly Bobo has actually been solved. And if their confessions, which was the only real thing tying them to the case, were false, then who killed Holly Bobo? According to Zach's defense attorney, the initial suspect in the case, registered sex offender Terry Britt, is actually the man responsible for Holly's murder. She claims he was never officially cleared by the TBI and that the government has more evidence on him than it does on the three men behind bars. Terry Britt, a man convicted of multiple rapes, did seem to match the physical description given by Clint Bobo and had a long history of stalking young blonde women. Not only that, but Clint apparently identified a voice sample belonging to Terry Britt as the one he heard the morning that Holly went missing. Terry claimed he was home with his wife the morning of Holly's murder, but when checked into a bit more thoroughly, his wife was actually at work meaning Terry was completely alone and his prints could not be excluded as a contributor of a handprint found at the scene, a print that didn't match any of the others. A U.S. Marshals Service inspector seemed to put the final nail in the coffin when he testified that, at one point, Terry Britt said to him, sounds like you have it all figured out, and said that he would plead to it, but did not go into further detail. All of this begs the question, why is Terry Britt a free man when two others are still behind bars? And did Holly Bobo ever really get the justice she so deserved? Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on October 13th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.